so despite what your bulletin says, we will be singing our hymn after the sermon rather than right now. Would you pray with me? God of grace, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Two weeks ago, I preached about Jacob and his wrestling match. And today we turn to the story of Jacob's son, Joseph. One of my favorite things that I picked up in seminary was an insight from one professor. He said, Biblical characters are not models of perfection, but instead are mirrors of our own humanity. You may have heard me say that before. It's likely I've shared it. I like it that much. Biblical characters are not models of perfection but instead are mirrors for our own humanity. If people misunderstand what the Bible is, they might imagine that it is somehow the stories of holy people. They might imagine that the Bible offers stories of holy, faithful people that can show us how to be holy, faithful people. But that is far from true. Sometimes when we remember our Bible stories— we tend to gloss over some parts. We remember our favorite parts or favorite stories. We remember the most inspiring heroes of the Bible. But every time I delve into the actual content of the Bible in all its gritty detail, I find that none of these people really stand as a model of perfection. The people in all of our Bible stories have their flaws and failings and bad behavior. Even though Joseph is known as a great man and a man of God and a leader, he is as flawed as anyone. The story of Joseph is one of the longest, most well-developed, most memorable stories in our Hebrew scriptures. And then we have pop culture like Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, the musical the choir was singing from, that only adds to our sense of the story's familiarity. It's worth a quick review of the story because, as with most stories, the little piece we heard today needs to be understood in the context of the whole thing. When we first encounter Joseph in the book of Genesis, he is a boy of 17. Prior to that, we know him only as a name in a list of the sons of Jacob. At 17, Joseph is his father's favorite son. He's spoiled and a tattletale. His brothers are jealous of his claim on his father's affection and irritated by his tattling. So his brothers decide to kill him. Just one brother, Reuben, argues no, and he manages to sway the others. They decide first to just then throw him into the bottom of a well, and then instead to sell him as a slave to a band of traveling Ishmaelites. They dip his famous coat of many colors in animal blood and take the jacket back to Father Jacob, claiming that Joseph was killed by wild animals. The slave traders then told, sold Joseph off to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials in Egypt. Joseph's bad luck continues when Potiphar's wife make, makes romantic advances toward Joseph Joseph turns her down, but in the process, he runs away, leaving his garment behind. Potiphar's wife claims that Joseph was there to insult her, and Potiphar is furious and throws Joseph into prison. 
while in prison, two of Pharaoh's servants are also imprisoned with Joseph. And they have dreams. Here is where Joseph's bad luck begins to turn. It turns out that Joseph has the gift of interpreting dreams, revealing their meaning. At last, a real break comes. Pharaoh himself has deeply disturbing dreams. None of his magicians or wise men are able to interpret them. Finally, one servant remembers how Joseph interpreted their dreams in prison and tells Pharaoh about this. So Pharaoh calls for Joseph to come interpret his dreams. Joseph's interpretations prove to be correct, and the wisdom gained from his dreams, thanks to Joseph, allows Egypt to make careful plans to manage the coming years of famine. Thanks to his role, Joseph becomes very powerful in Egypt. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Joseph's father's ranch, so to speak, the famine is taking a terrible toll. Jacob and sons are struggling, unable to come up with enough food. So Jacob sends his sons to Egypt, where it has gotten around that there is food aplenty in Egypt. And there they are, ten of Jacob's sons, most of Joseph's brothers, begging him for food for the family. But they don't recognize their brother. The most common lesson taught from the story of Joseph and his brothers is that it's an example of forgiveness because Joseph forgives his brothers for selling him into slavery. But here's the part that gets me. Joseph lets his brothers go on for a significant stretch of time before he reveals his identity. And in that process, he really puts them through the ringer. I don't know if you caught the line as the choir sang it, but he says, I shall now take them all for a ride. It's exactly what he does. Now, I agree that forgiving his brothers for selling him into slavery is a monumental act of forgiveness. But even so, Joseph forgives pretty much the way you or I forgive, imperfectly. When Joseph's brothers don't recognize him, Joseph enters into this prolonged deception. He continues to withhold his real identity from his brothers. And while he's figuring out what to do with the situation, he manipulates and threatens them. He scares the heck out of them by accusing them of being spies. He forces his brothers to bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, with them on their next trip, which goes against their father's wishes and causes their father much sorrow and anxiety. And then Joseph plants his silver cup into Benjamin's bag so he can accuse him of stealing and detain him. So before Joseph gets around to the forgiveness part, it looks an awful lot like he's acting out of vengeance instead. Joseph is not a model of perfection. We enter the story in our scripture reading this morning at the story's climax. Finally, Overcome by emotion, Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. He weeps. They are stunned and speechless. Joseph reassures them that he is there to preserve their survival in this time of famine and that he will take care of them. Some interpreters see this segment of the Joseph story as the tidy wrap-up. But I wonder about the details about what was going on, especially in the hearts and minds of these characters. Last week I mentioned that one thing the Bible doesn't give us is tone of voice, 
Another thing we don't get from the Bible is psychological insight. We may get a great storyline and good character development, but we don't get psychological insight. My own experience with forgiveness tells me that it's a messy business. We all know that Christians are supposed to forgive, right? Jesus said so. But how do we do that? I remember a time many years ago when someone hurt me really badly, so badly that I was certain that I did not need to forgive her. I really believed that what she had done was bad enough that it wouldn't be right or fitting for me to forgive her. So I decided I wasn't going to, and I was fine with that. I certainly did not talk to God about it. But the strangest thing happened. I found that as time passed, I could feel something in my heart shift. I started to see what she had done with more understanding and even compassion. I discovered that it didn't bother me as much as it once had. And finally, I realized that I actually had forgiven her. And that took me completely by surprise. I can't help but believe that God was working in me and inviting me into forgiveness in spite of myself. I also remember another situation, a situation where I did not forgive someone. I thought of it this week because I was trying to think of examples for this sermon, but the truth is that it was so long ago now that I usually don't think about it at all. It no longer feels like something that I need to work on. I had a supervisor in a job years back who really did treat me badly. He was incredibly hard on me and unkind in the way he came down to me. Frankly, he was just mean to me. So as a Christian who is called to forgive, maybe I should have forgiven him. At the time, I thought a lot about what was going on. I know he was very unhappy, so I felt like I had some understanding for where he was coming from, why he acted the way he did. But I never did forgive him. I don't really think about it anymore. I no longer feel any anger or pain or anything particular about the situation. But I also never experienced that sense of forgiving him. And I'll admit that I also never prayed about it, never asked God to help me forgive him. So I'm convinced that there is some mystery about how forgiveness works. I don't believe we can entirely will ourselves to forgive someone. Sometimes we can even believe that we have forgiven someone, or we may say we've put the past behind us, only to discover that that old hurt is still there, there to be hooked or reawakened by some trigger. I think when forgiveness does happen, some part of what happens is almost on an unconscious level, where we can't force it to happen, and maybe we also can't stop it from happening. Maybe as God works in us, that is somewhat beyond our control. I think we can try to forgive, but I think that something inside us has to shift with God's grace for that forgiveness to really happen. My experience feels like real forgiveness almost happens by magic. Only really I would call that grace. So what was going on with Joseph and his brothers? Joseph seems to have forgiven his brothers, but only after putting them through accusations and time in prison and framing them on false charges. We see so many sides to Joseph's character. The spoiled brat grows into a wise man who can still behave quite badly, 
but who ultimately comes down on the side of generosity and compassion. He's as much a mixed bag as any of us. And what about his brothers? Again, the Bible doesn't give us any psychological insight. The brothers are stunned when Joseph reveals himself, and I can imagine why. I imagine that they are facing their guilt for selling him into slavery and for even wanting to kill him. Joseph imagines that they are feeling guilty too. He says to them, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Maybe the brothers are wondering what their father will think when he learns after all these years that they had lied to him about Joseph's death. And they're probably also relieved to learn that their lives will be spared, that they'll be provided for in the face of this famine. But can they really relax and trust their fate at the hands of a man who had just framed Benjamin for stealing, who had detained and harassed them? I imagine their feelings are complicated. Biblical characters are not models of perfection, but are mirrors of our own humanity. The story of Joseph is a wonderful story about compassion and forgiveness. It's a story of how people might move on from a painful past into a new and better future. But Joseph's story is just as messy as our own stories of compassion and forgiveness, with their false starts and wrong turns and detours. In the midst of all of that, God keeps working with us. When the best we can do is to plant a silver goblet in a brother's bag, God works with us for something better. When we fall into pettiness or vengeance, God invites us to grow, invites us into transformation. Even though it's a cliche, I love this saying, God loves us enough to take us where we are, but loves us too much to leave us there. It is true. For as long as the stories of our lives continue, God continues to work with us in all our mess and imperfection, inviting us to grow ever closer to God's vision of who and how we can be. Amen.